something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, we're all here, it seems like it wasn't the end of the world, and uh, just to prove the facts, let's bring up the fader and bring in John Berger, how you doing sir? End of the world? What are you talking about? The eclipse. (laughs) The eclipse was so awesome. That was awesome. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a little while, but uh, how are things with you? Uh... Things are things. Just glad I'm not in Texas right now, really. Yeah, yeah. That, and, that's rough. And what can you say, really? Um, just wish everyone who's in that situation the, the best that they can make of it, really. Um, there are places that you can donate. If you can, though, donate to charities that are local to the Houston and Corpus Christi areas. Probably better to just go straight to the people who can utilize it best, which is, you know, uh, local Houston and, and Corpus Christi and places places around that area it's always best to go local for these things because you know that the people that are dealing with either the, the the financial situation or just the aid that needs to come through knows best where to distribute it really yeah there's some cool stories coming out of it though Did, i just saw the one today where uh, three guys from i, I think they're, they're actually from mexico and they actually started a bakery in houston they got stuck inside their own bakery so what did they do they just kept baking and then they're going to use that to help feed the people who are are displaced or you know because resources are going to be tough to get down there now mm-hmm. but they just they just kept baking i think that is the human spirit though isn't it i mean mm-hmm. uh, people generally get this spirit to to try and help as much as they can uh, and it's been the same over here you look at the 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 Grenville fire and the situations we've been having in the UK and in Europe with different uh, incidents that have been happening mm-hmm. the people have rallied around to help as much as they can it does make your heart feel really good that there is some humanity out there you know considering what happened it could have been a lot worse oh yeah it could have been a lot worse. Houston actually did the best thing by not trying to evacuate. There was this one thread from a woman who's from that area, and she was there when the last hurricane hit, and she showed a picture of one of the interstates where people would have been jammed on it and what the flood water levels were like. The entire families would have drowned if yeah. they tried to do some kind of mass evacuation. It could have been a lot worse than it was. Hopefully they recover quickly, and I think they will. It's Texas. They'll do it. Just do what you can, people. I wanted to mention Field of Force Day because that is coming up very soon, uh, the end of uh, September. And I wanted to mention about the burglary that they had at one of the oh. lockups, which was really bad news uh, for the event, this close to the event. I just want to play something in, if I may. Have a listen to this. Now, a Peterborough charity that provides accessible sci-fi conventions for people with disabilities has been left devastated after thieves stole dozens of sensory items. Much of the Star Wars and movie memorabilia have been donated by firms in the UK and overseas. Movie star Warwick Davies has condemned the offenders as Anna Todd reports. 
a sci-fi convention that is truly accessible for people with disabilities. We filmed this little Obi-Wan back in 2014, cuddled up to his beloved Chewie. Now age five, feel the Force Day is still a firm fixture in Alex's calendar. It's really important to Alex because he gets to understand about a film like Star Wars. A child like him can't really sit through a film. Uh, but when it's broken down into smaller pieces and the cosplayers can dress up as the characters and meet him um, and get close to him and he also gets to touch and smell and really feel the film and watch it on a flat screen uh, it's a real important day for us as a family to go to the convention is a labour of love for the organisers, bitterly disappointed this week to find thieves had stolen and broken donations and sensory toys from their locked garage in Peterborough. We had a Klingon gun and a DeLorean Back to the Future car that made noises that had come from the States that was donated because it was tactile and noisy. Five, I think, inflatable Darth Vader's. We had three large plastic containers. One was filled with Doctor Who figures. One was filled with Star Wars stuff, and I think one, the last one was filled with Hot Wheels stuff. I'm not normally like this. I'm just sort of welling up a little bit inside thinking about it, because it, it just, just makes me sick, I suppose that's the right word. Feel the Force Day attracts over 5,000 people a year. Movie star Warwick Davis is a keen supporter, taking time out from his holiday to send this message. They put on this event every year in their own time, at their own expense. It's now a charity. And um, for somebody to have stolen essential items that, that they need to put on this event, not only hurts them, but also hurts the people that go to the event, who look forward to this every year. Financially, it's, it's probably worth about £1,000 of equipment that's been stolen. Um, in terms of the, the use of it, it was just priceless. We spend the whole year working really hard to make the events happen and fundraising really hard and trying our best to... Um, make it a sustainable event um, and something like this just knocks us back. Simon and JJ have set up a fundraising page for people moved to help but they have vowed to carry on with September's event regardless. They refuse to disappoint the legions of fans who gain so much from their efforts. Anna Todd, BBC Look East, Peterborough. The thing that annoyed me more than anything is they didn't just steal things. The stuff that they couldn't steal, they broke. That's just nuts. As I said there, a fund has been set up. People have been very, very generous with it. People have been donating items as well. Um, I've got together with the guys at UK Astronomy and the guys at Dead Universe Comics and we've got together some Star Wars stuff uh, that we're donating and uh, we're taking it up to Peterborough soon and meeting up with Simon to um, present him with the gear. You know what? There could be a bright side to all of this because it's very possible that people are going to be outraged enough that they'll now get more stuff now mm -hmm. that they had before. It is quite amazing the kind of things that are being donated. I don't know if you remember when we went to Field of Force Day West Midlands, I was speaking to a guy called um, Simon Phipps who was part of the Mandalorian Mercs and mm -hmm. he builds his own armour and all that kind of stuff. He's actually built some Mandalorian helmets that he's actually donated. Nice. And they really do look good. Uh, and there is a lot of things that they they may not have had before, but 
it's the money over donated bits now because I think they're starting to run out of space for for bits and pieces. Right. Um, but the money is more than anything because it, it helps to replace um, sensory equipment and things like that, which you you know they're, they're not the kind of things you can buy at your local store or whatever. You have to get right. them specially made and things like that. So. It's really nice. Like we were just talking about with the spirit, you know, the human spirit that gets behind and and helps out. And th- it's the same with this. I mean, I put the word out on our Facebook pages and my own Facebook page. Um, and I've had friends getting hold of me saying, can we help? A friend of mine who runs his own haulage company, he has offered um, shipping containers to house stuff in if they need it. Nice. So... You know, it's it's really nice to hear this kind of stuff. Also, I wanted to mention about uh, Field of Force Day that we're going to be covering the event as a crossover with International Podcast Day this year, which you know about, John, because you've been helping out with some of the promotional material. Yeah, you know, Photoshop skills just come in handy every now and then. <laughs> yeah, so... We're going to be covering the event for International Podcast Day. Uh, the guys at International Podcast Day are going to help promote it for us as well. So that, that's all helpful. Any cross-promotion is always welcome because <laughs> mm-hmm. it gets the, the word out to an audience that we probably wouldn't have before. Yeah. So that's fantastic. We have got a few news stories and things. We're, we're obviously going to talk about the Eclipse as well. Later on in the show, Ross Hockham will be joining us from uh, UK Astronomy to talk about uh, what's happening in uh, September. I I was going to quote Queen, you know, with the show must go on. Well, come on, that phrase existed long before Queen. Yeah, but you can get a good soundbite from that. Um, But uh, I I won't be doing that. (laughs) So, yeah, after the break, we're going to talk all things spacey. I'm Anthony Carboni, and this is Science and Star Wars. Every week, we explore how close real-world science has come to our favorite Star Wars technology. Oh, my gosh! It's totally like Ray! Awesome! Let's start building a droid. We have our superconductor here. In the real world, lightsabers come in one color, blinding white hot. Whoa. Blasters are everywhere in Star Wars. How did it feel? Really natural. You get hurt in Star Wars, the back to tank heals your body. That's starting to really happen. High five. Nailed it. We made the land speeder. Hi, I'm see We've got human-side relations. You were really living on the space station. What is that like? So join us here every week for Science and Star Wars. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. This was fun. Look at him, he's heading for that small moon. That's no moon. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Eclipse was so cool. <laughs> that was neat. That was neat. Now, granted, I was in the area where it was like 77% and change coverage. But still, that that was neat to see. It was subtle, but if you went outside earlier then went back inside and then went back out when it was at its peak it was oh god i don't know how to describe it it's like everything was still just as bright but it was as though everything had a very very slight 
orange tint to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, well, you've seen the, the pictures that I was able to put up there. Yeah. Uh, I was actually able to take pictures with my phone, which is kind of unusual. I, I put the uh, solar eclipse glasses right up against the lens, mm-hmm. and I had an app that allows me to, to adjust manually adjust everything about the camera. And I managed to get a couple of decent ones, although, you know, obviously, camera phone, it's only going to be so good. It was neat to see. Now, the next one, we're going to be even closer. So, you know, I might even just make the trip west for that. Because it's really not that far. So, we'll see what happens. But, well, actually, what's really cool is that I have family in Dallas, which is going to be in the path of the eclipse. And I also have family up in New York. They're, like, right inside the path of the eclipse. All right. So, so if we just go maybe an hour or so west towards Rochester... It's going to be right in the middle of it. So we have opportunities to really see it next time. friend of the show, Liz Springs, was in South Carolina during the eclipse. And she recorded a couple of things for us. Have a listen to this. Hi, this is Liz for TGP Nominal, your monthly look into all things science fact and science fiction. I am in Charleston, South Carolina this afternoon watching the eclipse. We uh, unfortunately have cloud for about the first time this month, but thankfully the eclipse glasses really help block it out. Right now we are at a point where the moon's almost completely blocked out the sun. So it's like having the teeny tiny crescent moon, but during the day right now. Hopefully we'll get a full eclipse before the rest of the dark clouds come over. Here we go, just when we thought we weren't gonna get it. We've got thunderstorms all around. We've got full eclipse, dark skies, I can see stars, and there is lightning flashing all around, I swear to God. I can understand why people would think it was the end of the world once upon a time, but it is gorgeous. It is gold apart from the bottom corner where it's kind of bright red and pink. Wow. The minute the sun starts moving again, oh my lord, that's getting bright quick. We can sort of just see stars. And I think we can see a planet or two. Kind of hard to tell around the clouds. But here comes the sun again. And the lightning. (laughs) Hey, I'm with Brandon and Lydia. We've just survived the end of the world, apparently. So, guys, what did you think to the eclipse? I thought it was really beautiful. Um, I mean, personally... I'm a religious guy, so I mean, I think it's a beautiful act of God that, you know, you can get the moon in front of the sun like that, but it it was just incredible. It got really dark, too. (laughs) Yeah, the thunderstorms really kind of added a bit of an atmosphere to that one, didn't they? I was really afraid it was going to start raining for a second, but luckily it didn't. It was, uh, I've never seen anything, anything like that remotely. Like, you hear all these amazing things happening around the world, and something finally happened, like, around you, and it's it's breathtaking. It's, It's humbling, actually. It's... It's beautiful. Are you guys local then, or have you traveled in? Uh, we're from Texas, but I'm stationed in South Carolina for the Marine Corps. That's awesome. Well, thank you for your time, guys, and enjoy the rest of your day. Hi, me again. We're here with uh, John and friends. So what did you guys think of the eclipse? It was pretty pretty magical. You know, it was uh, probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen. You know, I was hoping to see some alien action. You know, I thought they'd come down and take me, but I guess I wasn't lucky this time. But... Uh, Maybe the thunder scared them off. Maybe it's not good to fly in. Maybe that's probably what it was. Yeah. They have pretty good equipment up there, I guess. So, you know, it was pretty cool. It really was. Are you guys local or have you traveled down or? We had to travel like a big mile and a half, you know. 
I know the feeling. I know the feeling. It's a long way, all the way from West Ashley to the Citadel Mall for me, anyway. No, it was, it was really cool. I mean, I wish it wasn't that cloudy. I think, you know, we would have been able to see stars and all that, but it was still definitely worth, worth seeing. Absolutely. What did you think? Thought it was great. Um, uh, I mean, I guess it's been like 40 years since the last one. I mean, I only traveled 100 yards across the parking lot, but uh, it was great. I'm pretty happy about the fact that it went from 96 to 80 in a matter of 15 minutes. The heat was getting pretty old in this, this summer in Charleston, so I'd be okay with a couple more eclipses this summer. Bring it down a notch. Are we sure with the like million people that have come into South Carolina just for this? Do we really want more? No, I think 60 people a day moving here is enough. So next eclipse can be somewhere else. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But it was cool to hear people coming from different parts of the world, just Charleston to see this. It's pretty great. We have we have a friend that drove from Pennsylvania. Wow. So and she got here today. I mean, that's pretty nuts. About 12 hour drive. Yeah. So that's pretty nuts. But overall, I thought it was awesome. I mean, the the breeze coming in, animals probably not acting the way they should. I mean, including the people here. <laughs> it was good. It was a good outing. I'm glad West Ashley got some sort of recognition besides West Ashley for once. I'm here with Lauren, one of the volunteers for Darkness to Light, who have put on the Eclipse Party today. We've had food trucks. We've had inflatables, bouncy castle and stuff for the kids. I think they were doing a like a raffle and all sorts of things going on. So, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So, what did you think to the Eclipse? It was a blast. I wasn't really sure what to expect, and I wasn't really sure what the turnout was going to be, but uh, it was amazing. And how would you say the event's gone with turnout, organization, all of that? How's that worked out? I think it went fairly well. Uh, a lot of people came out. It was more than I was expecting, so that was pleasant. And... Well, I've had a lovely day because I've come out with my five-year-old daughter, so having the things to bounce on and all of that was definitely good for keeping the kids occupied while we're waiting for the moon to move. So, but you're a volunteer with Darkness to Light. Can you tell me a little bit more about what Darkness to Light do? So Darkness to Light is a uh, nonprofit based in Charleston, uh, but they work nationally, working to fight to end child sexual abuse. They do a lot of educational programs through schools and businesses, uh, signs to look out for, things like that. Um, they have a lot of really comprehensive information and educational programs. Well, that sounds like a really worthwhile cause. I hope you guys have done well today. So thank you for talking to me. Thank you. It wasn't too painful, was it? Not too bad. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your day. I'm going to let my next victim, excuse me, willing, willing uh, interviewee introduce himself. Um, DJ Tantra, nine out through the box. Hi, and what did you think to the eclipse this afternoon? I thought it was pretty awesome. I'm just so glad that I was able to see it in person. Plus, I noticed a little bit of purple at the bottom when it had the ring around it, and it was just awesome. Pretty dope. Pretty awesome experience. If you didn't get to check it out, I don't know. I don't know what you was thinking. I mean, you pretty much just missed out on life just now. <laughs> That's pretty much if you weren't here. Ain't no point. <laughs> it was, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting with the thunder. Could you see all the lightning from this side? I saw the lightning from this side, and then I turned back around, and I was like, I'll stay away from that. Let's focus on the eclipse. Awesome. Well, thank you for talking to me. And uh, if people want to check you out, you're on. I'm on 993 The Box, Monday through Friday from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Awesome. Well, enjoy your day. Thank you. There were some characters there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were having fun. I don't blame them. That's kind of an exciting thing to be a part of. 
So I don't blame him. It was fantastic for Liz's first outing for us. Oh, she did fine. And she wants to cover other things. I mean, she felt a bit uneasy doing the eclipse because spacey stuff isn't her thing. But you send her to a Comic-Con or something like that. (laughs) That's different. So, yeah, hopefully we'll be working with her soon. I know she's always at some event, so it'll be interesting to see what she comes back with on some of those. We've been quite lucky because there's been a lot of people that are going to be letting us use some of their images of the day to go on our show notes. So there's been various members of the UK Astronomy Group have supplied photos of the partial eclipse that we got here. Some of the members actually supplied photographs of cloud (laughs) but the the lower you went towards like cornwall and down the south coast you actually did get a quite a good view i I take uh, it that you guys were in like what 20 percent coverage maybe not even that much something like that so we just got the last little bit of it which was quite good actually because well the last little bit it it actually took a, a chunk out of the bottom of it so uh yeah it was a bit different not only that uh, we had a guy from the UK astronomy group called Steve Knight and he's also given me access to his Flickr account because he took a trip to Oregon oh nice for, for it so got access to his photographs voice over guy Mark Silk he was in New York City and he got some photographs Paul Hutchinson you know Paul oh yeah I haven't wow I haven't talked to him in a long time <laughs> he took a trip to Hopkinsville in Kentucky mm-hmm. and uh, he got some photographs of that and the the guys at NASA Edge, Franklin, Blair, and Chris, they were covering the event at Carbondale in Illinois. So they oh, got yeah. some, they got some good stuff from there. Um, Ryan Cobrick, he was at Daytona in Florida, got some bits for us there. And Dave Lee from uh, International Podcasting Day, he was in Bakersfield in California, and he got some bits for us as well. So we've got people from all over the states that were providing <laughs> photographs for us. Nice. Well, then you certainly don't need to use my my crappy phone camera pictures. Uh, well, we'll add everybody's. So we'll we'll have some from Philadelphia, uh, from Philadelphia, from Pennsylvania, from South I'm, Carolina. I'm, I'm not that far from Philadelphia. Well, that's, that's the nearest city that I can get on uh, when I'm doing the time thing on my phone. I, I put in your actual area, and it's going what, who. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if you're going to do that, I'm probably closer to Baltimore than I am to Philly. Oh, right. Okay. Fair enough. Maybe a half an hour of driving. Oh, is that the difference? Yeah. Oh, right. But it's really nice of these people to agree to letting us use their images um, to go in the show notes. You know, I'll give them all the photo credit and everything on there, so that's not not an issue. It's funny how something like an eclipse brings the people together. Oh, I mean, it's something that everybody can appreciate. Mm. Even like that, that one guy who's put a more religious spin on it. There's something in there that just about everyone can appreciate, unless you've got some, like... There probably is some kind of a fear of eclipses out there. Yeah. Some, some scientific definition for it. So unless you're one of those people... Everybody can enjoy an eclipse. I did like the talk that uh, Bill Nye was giving during the eclipse, where he was getting kids to actually say, it's not magic, it's science. That's right. <laughs> uh, he's so cool. <laughs> yeah. But now the big question comes down to, all right, we, I was fortunate enough, or I might want to say I was uh, smart enough in this case to have purchased my glasses like three months ahead of time. So I got mine for less than a buck a piece. Mm-hmm. And there are people who spend a lot more money than that. But nonetheless, the big question comes down to, okay, now what? You know, we don't have 
another use for them. You can't really recycle them because that's a special kind of plastic that's used on them. So if you have Eclipse glasses, you can actually donate them because there's going to be another full Eclipse in South America and Asia in 2019. Mm -hmm. And the folks at the uh, Astronomers Without Borders are collecting them so that they can be used, handed out for free in South America and Asia, uh, you know, to developing nations, to the kids in those areas. Yeah. They do have a map on there with local businesses who will collect them. I actually have one not too far from here. So all you have to do is take your glasses in and bring it to those local businesses, and they will send them down to the folks at Astronomers Without Borders. Once they get the glasses, they will do complete testing to make sure they work. They'll make sure that they do have the ISO certifications. Obviously, there were issues with uh, people of low ethical fiber selling bad ones on uh, Amazon and so forth. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. So they will test them. They will make sure they work. And remember that we, we questioned the whole thing about why they had an expiration date on them? Mm-hmm. Well, they, they, they answered for the most part. Because it says that the one question is, well, there's a warning on my glasses that they're not safe to use after one year, two years, three years, whatever. And their response is the filter material is required to not degrade according to the latest ISO standard. The paper can be damaged by inappropriate storage, which may be concerned. That's Um, what that expiration date was about. That makes sense. Yeah, it's not that they would actually degrade over time because, as this says, the ISO specification says they're not supposed to degrade over time. But it it was just one of those things where, well, you know, people are just going to throw them in drawers and things like that. So that answers that question for us. I I checked mine. Mine didn't actually have a date on on them. But um, um, I actually restored mine in, um, in tissue. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've taken care with mine. <laughs> right, right, right. I figure, you know what, I'll just I'll just buy another pack next mm-hmm. time around. You know, it's not going to be that difficult. Who, and they're right. Who knows where I might end up storing it. And besides, if there are kids in other parts of the world who could use them, they can have them. Yeah, that's so, true. So, yeah. And also, uh, Astronomers Without Borders is a tax-exempt organization, so you actually can consider your glasses to be a a tax-deductible donation. Uh, They can provide the documentation to do that. Otherwise, if you don't have somebody close by to you, you can actually mail them in to the the company that they're uh, working with. It's Explore Scientific, and you can just mail your glasses in to, well, Explore Scientific at 1010 South 48th Street, Springdale, Arkansas, zip code of 72762 and they will take care of it and then that can that will help to make sure that kids in other parts of the world will be able to have glasses and protect their eyes once they have their eclipse in 2019 yeah that's pretty cool yeah i was wondering what to do with them because it's like there must be some other way to use them and that's when i when i first saw that announcement that that they were doing this it's like aha that's awesome did you see those? I don't know if they were fake news or not. Uh, there was news stories out there about some people that had uh, been going to the hospital, um, not because they'd looked directly at the sun, but because they had put sun protection cream directly into their eyes. To I pre- heard. Oh, my. Really? <laughs> it's just... Oh... I, I, I don't get it. See, you, you don't know if those kind of stories are true or not, do you? But the, 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 the thing is, the, I saw them from quite legitimate sources. 
So, yeah. You know, I, I'm sorry, but at times like this, I have to think of a quote by the late, great George Carlin, who basically said, think of how dumb the average person is, and then realize that half of them are dumber than that. <laughs> Just statistically speaking, take the average person and realize that half the people are dumber than that. You don't know what to say to that, really, do you? No. No. With all the warnings that you get, don't put stuff in your eyes. And even if you just accidentally are you're spraying hairspray and you get some in your eyes, you know what that feels like. And then you're going to put on an ultraviolet cream onto your eyeballs. Really? Uh, whatever. I, I did just nothing to say. You know, it might, might have been one of those things some idiot on Facebook decided to post that. It's like, oh, hey, I saw it on Facebook, so it must be true. God knows we don't have any of that kind of attitude going around, do we? That's why at first I thought it might be fake news. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're not even in the U.S. and you're calling it fake news. We, we have it over here. We Ever, ever since certain people came into power, um, <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> That's so sad. There is another event coming up in October, uh, on October the 28th. Uh, it's the International Observe the Moon Night, or in OM. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can tell this has been set up by NASA, can't you? Mm. Anyway. It's is that a, NASA with all uppercase or just uppercase N? Uh, this is not the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the International Observe the Moon Night is an annual worldwide public event that encourages observation and appreciation of the moon. All are invited to learn more about the moon and its connection to NASA, planetary science and exploration, as well as our cultural and personal connections to it. Each year, thousands of people participate in uh, events at museums, planetaria, schools, universities, observatories, parks, businesses, and backyards around the world. Any astronomy club, in interest group, or individual anywhere can host an event. Events range from a small family gathering to community events that draw hundreds of visitors. Uh, if, you, if you look up International Observe the Moon Night, there is a website, and there is a map there with all the events that are taking place, all the registered events anyway so it should be a good there are a lot worldwide there are hundreds holy cow i was quite surprised when i saw those pins on the map there there are lots wow that's surprising i think that things like the eclipse is only going to encourage more people to look up at the sky you know what i think this is a call for noah petro I think so as well. I was thinking exactly <laughs> the same thing, because this is just right up his street, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is his kind of thing. <laughs> any excuse to look at the moon, or for in his case, any excuse to talk about the moon. <laughs> and we're all ears. Oh, yeah. Some of the things that he has spoken to us about... I didn't even know was actually going on there. I mean, to know that the preservation of some of this, this moon rock and they're still working on it, you know, 50 years on. It's right. just staggering to believe, really. And the, and the research that he's been doing, his own personal research, you know, because he has been writing papers on this kind of stuff. Noah just puts it across in, in a way that you just want to hear more. And I'm determined to get down there and actually meet him, but the big problem right now is just starting another job. I've got to accrue my vacation time. Yeah. But I do plan on getting down there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've I've uh, explained the situation to to Noah, um, and he actually says good luck with the job. By the way, oh thank you. It's it's going back to a place that I used to work at anyway, so it's not all that bad. They already know me and all that, but uh, you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes it's just forced on you. <laughs> We've had a few TV shows over here just started recently, which are all space-related. Well, you remember the BBC show Tomorrow's World? Oh, yeah. That show used to go on from 1965 to 2003, and it was the flagship program of technology and science and everything uh, around that kind of genre. It has recently been revived, and it's now called Tomorrow's World Live the first episode was broadcast on Facebook Live and YouTube the, the 30th of uh, August at the London Science Museum and future episodes will come from various science centres across the UK once a month. The first episode was entitled Move to Mars and featured uh, Dr Kevin Fong, Professor Monica Grady, Dr Beth Healy and Libby Jackson. Now these people are very big in the space world um dr kevin fong actually follows tgp nominal on twitter Um, and he holds a degree in astrophysics and medicine from the university college of london and has a master's degree in astronautics and space engineering from cranfield university kevin also presented the 2015 royal institution christmas lectures entitled how to survive in space Professor Monica Grady is currently Professor of Planetary and Space Science at the Open University. She also gave a Royal Institution Christmas Lecture back in 2003, and her subject was A Voyage Through Space and Time. And she also has an asteroid named after her. Oh, nice. Uh, Asteroid 4731 is now called Monica Grady, all one word, in her honour. (laughs) <laughs> you had, uh, as I say, Dr. Beth Healy. She is a, a British medical doctor who spent a year in Antarctica at the Concordia Station, a, a French-Italian base, as a research MD. She worked for the European Space Agency, researching the effects of physical and psychological isolation on a group of people. Concordia has been called the White Mars because it's the nearest equivalent we have on Earth that has the same kind of isolation which would be experienced by long-distance space travellers. So, yeah, she spent a whole year in isolation with uh, another group of people studying how it affected them, which would have been an interesting study, I think. (laughs) Yeah. The other TV show that I was going to talk to you about is uh, a show called Astronauts Do You Have What It Takes?, and the best way to describe this show is you know you've got shows like X Factor and Pop Idol and all of those kind of shows. Imagine people that are interested in space and they think they've got what it takes to be an astronaut and they've applied to go on this TV show. There was thousands of them. Whittled down to 12 candidates. And obviously throughout the weeks, these 12 candidates will be whittled down to one these people are put through the astronaut selection process Mm -hmm. there are three judges i guess you can call them just tell me simon cowell's not one of them no 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 we we do something better than simon cowell for this the first judge i've already mentioned him kevin fong 
mm-hmm. <laughs> because of his medical background, he is actually judging how people are uh, actually coping physically. Then you've got uh, Dr. Aya Whiteley, and she's a space psychologist at the University College of London. And their version of Simon Cowell is the one and only Chris Hadfield. Get out! Yeah. Nice! Now, candidates on this show have included a nuclear engineer, an RAF pilot, and a secondary school science teacher. That's a a high school science teacher. They've had two episodes of this show, and they've been doing some really weird and wonderful tests. The first thing they had to do, they went into a helicopter, and they had to get it to hover perfectly for a a certain amount Mm. of time. That is not easy. No, no, it's not. I've done enough simulations to know that uh, flying a helicopter, even with the uh, three-axis joystick, no, that's not easy. Granted, some of the pilots did quite well on that one. There was one guy, and you have to say, I've got control. And Mm -hmm. then then the instructor, because it's dual-controlled, hands it over to you. And it just veered off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they're a pain. They're a real pain. And there was another test, and, and one lady in particular struggled with it because she w- is an explorer, and she's been up places like Everest and stuff like that, and she got caught in an avalanche. So she has a problem with confined spaces. And one of the tests they had to do, they had these pods, almost like eggs, that they had to sit in and the, and the the lid of the the pod went on top of them pitch black total isolation you had to sit in there and try and work out when 20 minutes was up and that's not easy either <laughs> you know um when tim peak was up on the space station where they got him to remotely control a, a mars rover uh, back on earth around a course and some of the rocks had markers on them which could only be seen by ultraviolet light. They got these girls and guys to do the same challenge and they only had a certain amount of time. Basically, the reason why was because if they were doing it with a real rover, there will be a point when you don't have any view of the sun, so therefore the solar panels wouldn't work on the rover. Mm -hmm. So they had to do this in a certain amount of time. Now, they had this guy who was a planetary geologist. So he basically is, well, he's not, he's a student to be um, a planetary geologist. Basically, what Noah Petro does and uh, he got hold of the rover and he couldn't see a single rock and I thought you're studying geology and you couldn't see a rock (laughs) (laughs) wow well I got nothing and then there was this other guy I think he was the school teacher and he said I've got this and they said why do you think you've got this and he said I'm a video gamer yep Uh, it depends and he said, I do a lot of first-person shooting ups and things. And, yeah, he scanned around. He saw the rocks that he could see. He got most of them already, went in in a straight line, turned the camera around, saw what he could see. Then he turned the camera back to where he came from so he could see the tracks that he'd laid. And he came directly back through the tracks so he knew exactly which way he had to go. Nice. And still did it with five minutes left on the clock. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and he still told you, video gaming works every time. 
It does, because I know how difficult helicopters are because of various flight simulator games that I've played that use helicopters in them. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so they've done that kind of stuff. They've done the, um, you know, the simulator where it's um, it's almost like you're sitting in a helicopter and they tip it up into a swimming pool. So that, yes. Yeah, they did all those kind of challenges as well, and they are not easy. So it's an interesting show. I can't remember how many episodes there are of it. The winner of this competition gets to train with the ESA candidates to hopefully become an ESA astronaut. Yeah, it's hard. And some of the people in there are, you know, quite young. The oldest person in the competition was 52. Wow. I put the trailer up for it on the Facebook page for TGP Nominal. It's a a really good show. Johnson Space Center is currently closed. Uh, because of obviously the hurricane, they are active. But I mean, anybody who might have been planning on being in the area and hoping to go see it, really don't even try. But on the plus side, obviously the James Webb Space Telescope is down there, and they've said flat out the telescope is fine. They actually had people there uh, who were there throughout the whole storm, and they were running their tests. Uh, doing everything that they needed to do. They got 42 inches, uh, or 107 centimeters for the rest of the world, of rain in just a few days, which is insane. Um, But the folks for the Webb Telescope said that, yes, water did get into the building from the flood. However, right now the telescope is in a, uh, what do they call it, a thermal vacuum chamber. So basically, they are exposing it to the temperatures of space just to make sure that everything works. Mm -hmm. So it is in this completely sealed environment. Thankfully, the telescope is just fine. I was wondering about that, actually, because you you never know where it is at any particular time because it keeps moving around the country. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's been there for a, a few months now. This is where they're doing their testing. But yeah, right now it's in a nice, tight, vacuum sealed chamber. Talking about the the space program, did you see those live pictures they were showing of the the RS twenty five engines that a bit were being tested? The uh, the engines that are going on the space launch I, system. I did not have a chance to see that. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that is powerful. Oh, I would think so. You know, for me, when it comes to those test firings, I just want to know the strength of the the, the framework that's actually holding it in place. And the bolts, because if you get any friction on a bolt, it moves and therefore it loosens. So, yeah, they got to be pretty strong. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm actually more fascinated by the engineering to hold that thing in place than I am by the engine itself. Is that a bad thing? Um, Not really, because imagine if that came loose. And yeah. started going horizontally rather <laughs> across. That wouldn't be good. No, especially if it was an SRB. No. Yeah. Oh. No, I, I did miss that test firing though. And also, Sierra Nevada have been doing some tethered test flights of the Dream Chaser. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff happening at the moment. Um, there's one thing I will say. Um, you know, we've been mentioning uh, about Copenhagen suborbitals. They were due to launch their Nexo 2 rocket last weekend. It has been postponed. The earliest time now is going to be, I think it's either the 9th or 10th of September. So um, keep an eye out for that because they will be launching sometime soon there, there have actually been a lot of launches since the last show mm. 
they've had a ridiculous amount of launches. Some of them were only like two days apart. Different companies, obviously, but still. Yeah, there was one today, actually, in um, one of the Indian ones. Oh, yeah, today. that didn't make it. Mm. The Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle took off. Everything seemed to go, and it actually went to deploy the satellite. Mm-hmm. But the heat shield didn't come off. They released it, but it couldn't go anywhere because the heat shield couldn't come off. But on, on the plus side, I mean, that's the first failure of that kind of rocket and so forth in decades, which really, that's a good track record. And from what they were saying, that it was only one satellite that was on board, so it's not a massive loss. They're, they're going to get another satellite up there. But yeah, so that, that's all, all because the heat shield didn't pop off when it was supposed to. The launch procedures through the the Indian setup have been so good of late. I mean, they've, mm-hmm. it, it was almost like Ariane space. You know, it's virtually second to none with their launches. I don't think the Ariane 5, they've ever had any um, problems with that, have they? I, don't, I, I can't remember hearing any problems with that. Some of the other smaller rockets, they did have had a few problems. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Indian setup has, has been pretty spot on over the last few years uh so space is hard yeah as we keep saying space is hard um but you do expect it every now and then but there you go well nasa had a big thing about cassini and how that's going to be ending in well just a couple of weeks really so yeah september 15th is when cassini is going to finally be burned up in saturn's atmosphere and they had a, a, I want to call it a press conference for lack of a better term, outlining all the, the things that have happened so far and what they plan on doing with it. So on September 9th, it's going to make the last of its 22 passes between Saturn and its rings. Its closest approach is going to be 1,044 miles above the cloud tops. Wow. That's two-thirds the distance that I took on my little drive that we discussed last time. Mm-hmm. That's how close this thing is going to be to the clouds of, of Saturn. So then it's on September 11th, it's going to make a flyby, uh, last flyby of Titan. Then September 14th, it's basically going to take one last look around. It's going to take pictures of the moons, uh, Titan and Enceladus. Uh, it's going to take a look at that crazy hexagon-shaped t- uh, jet stream that it's got at the one pole. Have you seen that one before? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Really? It, it's really cool because if you if you look at the images of the North Pole of Saturn, it's got a hexagon shape to it. Oh, it's wow. not circular. It's hexagon. So they're going to take a few more pictures of that. Then basically they're going to point the antenna to Earth, and it's just going to start live streaming everything. And uh, so then September 15th, it's going to start with all of its preparation, if you want to call it that, for the final plunge. At 7.53 a.m. Eastern on September 15th, it's going to start boosting its uh, thrusters to try to maintain pointing the antenna back at Earth, transmitting all the data it can until the last moment. Only a minute later, they expect the thrusters to be at 100% capacity, but then the atmosphere is just going to overtake it. And then at roughly 940 miles above Saturn's clouds is when they expect it to finally break up in the atmosphere. But they said that they're going to have eight instruments live while it's doing that. Uh, It's going to be their magnetosphere imager and their spectrometer, their infrared and ultraviolet spectrometers, dust analyzer, uh, magnetometer, as well as just other, you know, radio and other antennas and so forth just to get every bit of data out of their I think it has 13 instruments on board eight of them are going to be live reporting on its descent into the atmosphere so they're going to get as much data as they can 
they released a what they call by the numbers. This thing over the past 13 years has traveled 4.9 billion miles, which is just shy of 8 billion kilometers, 294 orbits, for over 453,000 images taken, 162 targeted flybys of its moons. Six named moons have been discovered, and I love this one, 635 gigabytes of data collected. (laughs) This thing has been busy, and now that we know that some of the planets at least have the potential of harboring life, it makes sense that they just want to burn it up in the atmosphere of of Saturn. Mm -hmm. Because it's a joint venture as well, there's going to be a lot of people feeling the same way i think that uh, they did when what happened with rosetta i think yeah i think so too yeah. it's really, you know it's it's been a 13 year mission so mm-hmm. that, that's been people's lifeblood for over a decade yeah not only you know the th- the 13 years it's it's been traveling and things the lead up to that there's sure yeah probably another 10 years of research before then at least the science part of it they'll still be analyzing things a long time after it's oh my god yes gone oh yeah there's there's so much they can do in, in fact there's an article later on that i have about uh, an older space vehicle that has they've been they've gone back to the original images and they've been producing some new ones and they look fantastic mm-hmm so, you know, they're going to be doing that same kind of thing with this for a long time. It's going to be interesting to see what's actually going to happen with that. Well, once it, once it starts getting nearer and nearer, because obviously it's still going to be producing images as it gets nearer. Yeah, well, actually, they said that they're going to shut the camera off on the 14th. Yeah, oh, right wow. before it does its final plunge, they're going to shut the camera off. It's still going to do a, a flyby at a thousand miles over the cloud tops. Mm-hmm. And the camera's going to be running at that time. Even at that, just the images that it's already given us. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely amazing. When you think of the technology that they've been using, considering the fact that what you can produce from a smartphone uh-huh. now, compared with the imagery that you could get back then, the imagery is just out there, really. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. That's the end of, a, of a yet another space vessel. I mean, you look at Voyager. Yeah. It just just keeps going. <laughs> In fact, that's the vessel that I was talking about. So as you know, Voyager is coming up on its 40th anniversary. You know, obviously both Voyagers. Well, a guy named Ian Regan over at the Planetary Society went back and grabbed the raw data and the raw images that were taken. Up until this point, we've seen the images that Voyager produced. But if you actually watch the video that most shows will use... It looks like really bad VHS quality. It's not good. Mm -hmm. But the original images were actually 800 by 800, which by definition are high definition. And it's actually a really fascinating process on how he went back to those original photos because all that data is still available. It's it's still good to use. And he went through a whole bunch of resampling and he explains in the article about how it produced uh, all of the images because it actually took three images, at, like one right after the other, and it wasn't red, green, and blue as you might have expected. It was actually, no wait, I do have it here, orange, green, and blue for uh, Voyager 1, and orange, green, and violet for Voyager 2. So he would take each of those images, and he actually did it in six stages. He's got the raw image, then he actually used a... Uh, 
what's called FFT filtering to remove high frequency noise. Then he used uh, some some shading issues to try and you know how with shading you get the the gradient when you, when you're approaching the uh, horizon marker. Yeah. It starts out light and then starts to go into to nighttime and so forth. He changed it so that that boundary is a little bit brighter, so you don't lose as much to darkness. I guess that's the best way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. But then he also ran it through the you know the orange and the green and the blue and so forth, and then just combined all of that data together, and he produced several movies that are available to watch. That it's the exact same footage, but it looks glorious because now it's in high def and it looks absolutely amazing but yeah he goes through the whole thing on the scripts that he wrote and the processes that he went through but you know he, he makes them all available and you can just look at them so you can see all these images approaching jupiter of voyager one and two and they look fantastic yeah i mean if you haven't well it was only released a few days ago mm-hmm. uh but the video footage is just it, it's <clears throat> it's stellar oh man that was awful that was... that was awful i know i know i'm not ashamed <laughs> <laughs> no really it, it looks fantastic and like i said he's also got the original video that people have been utilizing in various tv shows and so forth for years and there's just no comparison ladies and gentlemen you know it you love it you can't live without it this is TGP normal. Nominal. Damn. The Planetary Society has, as you know, been launching a few things. I mean, you were involved with one of them, uh-huh. uh, the, the original LightSail project. They've started fundraising again for the LightSail 2. There is a, a kind of a video to promote the program, and uh, here's a little listen to that. Hello, I'm Jennifer Vaughn, Chief Operating Officer with the Planetary Society. I'm Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology and the Program Manager for LightSail. Our LightSail 2 spacecraft is about ready to make space exploration history. It will be the first CubeSat to demonstrate controlled solar sailing, and we're inviting you to be part of this history-making event. We had our successful LightSail 1 test mission in May of 2015. Now we're in final preparations for the launch of LightSail 2 on board the SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket and we need your help to get there. So we're asking for your support today. And we're excited to tell you that any contribution made will be boosted by a generous matching gift challenge issued by a Planetary Society member. Let me tell you a little about LightSail and solar sailing. Solar sail technology has the potential to travel through space without bringing any fuel. Our LightSail 2 spacecraft starts the size of a loaf of bread but once in space, it unfurls its reflective mylar sails to 32 square meters, and that's about the size of a boxing ring. The sails are then pushed by sunlight and can be used to change the spacecraft's orbit. In 2015, we launched LightSail 1, our test spacecraft. The goal of the test flight was to deploy our sails and help us identify spacecraft issues so they could be corrected before undertaking the primary mission, LightSail 2. LightSail 2 was originally scheduled to launch in 2016. But the launch was delayed. So we've turned that delay into opportunity to make extensive upgrades. And that's led to more tests. And that led to more enhancements. We've really made the most out of the extra time. With the increased costs of upgrades and testing, we are in need of additional funds. So we're asking you to consider making a gift to help us go the distance and get us all the way to the launch pad. As a special thank you, 
we will be offering supporters of this historic mission a very exciting opportunity. In addition to having your contribution matched by our generous donor, we will thank you by offering a chance to win a special VIP trip to watch LightSail 2's launch from Kennedy Space Center with our CEO, Bill Nye. That's right, you can join Jennifer, Bill Nye, and me at the launch. So consider making a gift today to help get us to the launch pad. We thank you for being part of the mission team and truly appreciate your support. There's two things that strike me there. They, they mentioned that there was a delay. Was it the fact that the Falcon Heavy wasn't ready? Because uh, that has been put back a couple of times. Yeah, I, I was wondering that too. Uh, don't know. It might be the Falcon Heavy issue. Due to launch soon, isn't it? Um, they, they said it was going to be in the final quarter of um, 2017. So, yeah. But I haven't heard anything about it recently. So I don't know. The other thing that springs to mind is this uh, anonymous donor that they've got. Well, I mean, a lot of times that's just companies that they partner with will will we'll just match funds mm -hmm. don't don't be a conspiracy theorist <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not i'm just thinking is is it a a company is it a a, a a group of people that have put some money together for it or is it a single person well does it matter yeah but it'd be interesting to see who it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But I mean, also want to say this for anybody in the U.S. who wants to do that. Planetary Society is considered to be a nonprofit organization, so any donations to them are probably tax deductible as well. In fact, I know they are because my uh, Kickstarter for the first one, if I could have deducted that from my taxes. Now, they have different gradients of uh, what you can actually give as a donation and the cheapest one they do is $50 I think well they have an other so really it could be whatever you want it to be now their goal uh, this was earlier today uh, is 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 $100,000 and earlier today when I looked at it, it was 93,000 at uh, 93% so um, I don't know if that's changed now it probably has yeah, almost there, 98%. So it's gone from 93 to 98 in the space of about four hours. Imagine going to a launch site with Bill Nye. That would be awesome. <laughs> There's two different types of people when it comes to being passionate about space. You've got people like Bill Nye, and then you've got people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is a completely different scale because he's got a very laid-back way of dealing with things. But it may be laid back, but the way he puts it across, you still want to listen. I mean, come on, you listen to that guy speak. He's got a voice like silk. I mean, <laughs> I mean he's no Morgan Freeman in that regard. But no. <laughs> I mean, You could get Morgan Freeman to say anything, and it just sounds... <laughs> you know, sounds amazing. <laughs> just get him, to, get him to read the instructions on a, a packet of washing powder or something. Just... <laughs> Instant gravitas. <laughs> NASA is studying what they're calling a lean architecture uh, to get back a sample from Mars that could allow them to get back actual Martian soil and rocks as soon as the end of next decade. It, this is just a couple of things that they're looking into. This is obviously kind of a priority with them because we, we kind of know what the Martian soil is, mm -hmm. but until we actually get some, we're not really going to know for sure. So what they're hoping to do is launch a Mars lander no earlier than 2026 
equipped with a sample collection rover that would then basically launch back up to an orbiter, which would be launched separately, and then that would return either directly to Earth or somewhere in orbit above the Earth, which they will then collect in one way or another. They say that they're hoping uh, to actually have it where, in the timeline of the launch, it would be that the launcher goes off in the beginning of the first year and brings the samples back in the latter half of the third year. So if they launch in 2027, they'll have something back by the end of 2029, that sort of thing. The whole thing of actually landing, picking up the soil, and then getting it back into Mars orbit, they're hoping would be about nine months of that time. Obviously, the rest of the time is just travel. They're talking about not even having scientific instruments on board. I mean, do they really need to? We've got two rovers up there, mm-hmm. and we've got a bunch of orbiters up there. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense that they don't want to have to put additional stuff onto it. Plus, that should help to keep it more cost-effective and so forth. It says that uh, what they're also doing is they're trying to eliminate the need for yet another orbiter they wanted to communicate with existing orbiters that are currently up there whether it's the mars reconnaissance orbiter or europe's trace gas orbiter you know there are a couple of different things going around mars that can be used as communication relays yeah so that's the whole thing they want to keep it as cheap as possible using what they've already got uh don't worry about extra science instruments just go up there land something on the surface grab some dirt get it back up into orbit and then back over to Earth, hopefully by the end of the next decade. It's a really weird thing with Mars. I mean, that, that thing I was watching yesterday, the uh, Tomorrow's World Live show, they were talking about that kind of thing. And they were also talking about, you know, obviously they want to put humans on Mars. And they spent all this time putting vehicles in clean rooms and all this kind of stuff to make sure that we don't contaminate the vehicle so that when they go onto these planetary services, we're not contaminating the planet. So why would you want to put humans on another planet? Because the first thing you're going to do <laughs> is contaminate the planet. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> and the talk on the show, and we've been on about it, we've been talking with other guests about it, and we know that um, some of the old Apollo uh, astronauts are, also feel strongly about it, apart from Buzz, <laughs> going back to the moon before we go to Mars. And another person who's added to that list is Chris Hadfield. Oh, really? Yeah. He's been asked the question, why do you think we should travel and try and live on the moon before aiming for Mars? And he answered, for tens of thousands of years, humans have followed the pattern on Earth imagination to technology enabled explorations to settlement it's how the first humans got to australia 50,000 or 60,000 years ago and how we went from yuri gagarin to alan shepard orbit in the earth to people living in orbit there are six people living in the international space station and we have people there constantly for the last 17 years but the reality is we've not yet figured out how to permanently live off planet Mm-hmm. So I think if we follow the historically driven pattern to the moon, that should be a first. Not to reaffirm that we can get there, but to show that we can live there. Yeah, well, you know what? I'll throw another one out. Talk about us contaminating Mars or whatever. Well, what about the remote chance of something from Mars contaminating the Earth? So then why not, if they're going to do this, get a station on, on the moon, 
mm-hmm. and have the samples from Mars go to the moon. Yeah. Let them do their testing there where there's no chance of contaminating Earth. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and in the meantime, they learned how to construct, you know, uh, how to how to have buildings and how to live in space on the moon. And we've talked about this before, but <laughs> I've it's just, I've just seen another question uh, that was asked to him. Um, he said that uh, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence recently said his country will put American boots on Mars. How long do you think it will take? And he answered, "It's easier for Vice President of the U.S. to say that." But it's not going to be while he's vice president. No. I think ultimately we'll be living on the moon for a generation before we get to Mars. If the world and the moon were threatened and the only way to preserve our species was to launch from Earth, we would go to Mars with yesterday's technology. But we would probably kill just about everybody on the way. Yeah. Chris Hadfield always has how to put things into layman's terms to understand mm-hmm. how, how things work. And this is how he puts it. It's as if you and I were in Paris, paddling around the Seine in little canoes saying, we've got boats, we've got paddles, let's go to Australia. Australia? We can right. barely cross the English Channel. A journey to Mars is conceivable, but it's still a lot further away than most people think. I like that analogy. But he always does that. Any situation, you ask him anything, and Chris Hadfield always has an analogy that he can use, which is why he's such a great ambassador for space. (laughs) Yep. Chris Hadfield is just amazing. Hey, anybody who can sing a David Bowie song from the space station gets props with me. And I just love the way that his mission patch was in the shape of a guitar pick. (laughs) Which is awesome. But, yeah, there's a whole interview here, um, and I got it from the New Scientist, actually. If, if anybody wants to read the whole interview, it's from the 23rd of August, and it, it is re- really good read. And he talks sense. Another person who's highly regarded in the space community is saying, let's go to the moon first. Yep, it makes complete sense. I know the the later missions were were longer, weren't they, out to the moon? But it's still only a few days, mm-hmm. so we need to know how long we can su- survive in that environment. We know how long we can survive in the space station, but that's completely different to being on the surface of somewhere. And it just makes perfect sense in many different ways. You know, these are people that are more qualified to argue the case than you or I. (laughs) Well, as long as we're talking about the moon and Mars, there's one other planet that we just kind of seem to be ignoring, and it's our other neighbor, Venus. Now there's some talk about sending, believe it or not, a rover to Venus. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, considering that it's not really hospitable to that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, but engineers at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they're they're actually trying to design a rover that will actually survive on the surface of Venus. Because keep in mind, Venus is hot. (laughs) Venus is really hot. Uh, with with average surface temperatures around 864 degrees Fahrenheit, that's just over 460 degrees Celsius. That's hot. It's hot enough to melt lead. And then the pressure, the atmospheric pressure, is more than 90 times that of Earth. So, I mean, the the Soviets were able to send up probes in the 70s and 80s, but they only lasted a couple of hours before they just they couldn't handle it anymore. 
what they're looking at doing in this case is instead of making it an electronic probe, making it a mechanical probe, or, or as they're calling it, a clockwork rover, which is really kind of interesting. So they're not really going to bother trying to set up a cooling system or you know heat-tolerant hardware or so forth because that's just going to make it that much more expensive. But a guy at JPL by the name of Jonathan Sauter, uh, he's decided to come up with this thing called the Automation Rover for Extreme Environments. Yes, A-R-E-E, because you got to <laughs> have the acronym. But he believes he can actually use mechanical computing to making a long-lasting Venus rover. He says that Venus is too inhospitable for uh, any kind of complex control systems you have on the Mars rover. But with a fully mechanical rover, you might be able to survive as long as a year. We've had mechanical devices for God knows how long. You you guys have them over in Europe, little, you know, uh, mechanical things that go off regularly, clocks and, and... music boxes and so forth they've been running fine for decades or centuries and they're still chugging along so you don't have to make it electronic for it to work it actually looks like an open box sort of thing like just just the framework for a box but what they do is they would have the wind blowing through channels uh, through the body of the thing to provide power and then they would actually have an orbiter that would send codes for what it can do, uh, as well as receive data from it. Now, obviously, this sort of thing is going to be very limited on what it can do because you're not going to have electronics. You know, at least not not like we have on the rovers, that sort of thing. You might be able to have some kind of electronics on it, but basically, what it's trying to do is use the, the power of the wind from the planet to provide the power, and it would just simply relay back to an orbiting satellite. So obviously it doesn't go into a lot of detail as to what kind of information it could collect because the data would actually be sent by something like Morse code. Again, mechanical. Mm -hmm. So it could only do so much to try to figure out what's going on. But still, just the thought of having a rover that could tell things, you know, maybe temperature or whatever, completely mechanically and send that data back to another satellite, which will relay it back to Earth for upwards of a year? That's a pretty cool idea. (laughs) Well, no, it's on Venus. There's nothing cool about Venus. (laughs) There's a lot of heat. And if it works, we could be sending a rover up to Venus. When you were saying about that, I don't know if you've seen them. They're classed as sculptures, but they're actually moving sculptures. They've been uh, making them for a while, which are sort of like wind-powered to scuttle across beaches and things. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. them. Uh, it just reminded me of that. Cool. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but, I mean, it's it sounds like it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, because at least with mechanical, they could still have wheels, you know, and it will still have some sort of rudimentary power because, again, obviously it would have to collect data and, and convert that to Morse code and so forth. So it's, an, it's a really interesting idea, and it is kind of cool that at least they're trying to go back to a planet that, let's face it, we've kind of ignored because couldn't really do much with it up to this point. Mm-hmm. We can send probes to orbit it, but until you can actually get on the surface, what you can get from orbit is, is kind of limited. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah, um, as you were saying about uh, the different things that we've got that are centuries old, like clocks and things, I, I take it you saw the, the news story uh, about, uh, I think it was last week, Big Ben chimed for the last time until they've yeah fixed it. <laughs> it's going to be. So, were things as confusing as I've read? 
Uh, were people really as confused as I read because they're so used to it going off? I guess so. The confusing thing is going to be New Year's. Oh. Well, there must be other bells in the area that you can use. I'm sure they can have a massive, great big amplifier and have a recording. I mean, oh, yeah. a- <laughs> I mean are, are there no other buildings in the immediate area that could serve as, as New Year's? You know, during the New Year's. Um, uh, now they do it on the on the banks of the Thames because they have fireworks and things over the um, London Eye and all that kind of stuff. Right. It used to be in Trafalgar Square. That's where they used to do bringing in the New Year, but they stopped it because there's lots of fountains and things in Trafalgar Square. Right. And people, you know, they've been drinking and. Uh, <laughs> falling in the fountains and uh, that kind of stuff. I, I see where you're going with that. <laughs> so they moved it to a more enclosed area where they can actually charge you for tickets. <laughs> they they say it's for health and safety reasons that they need to know how many people are in any one place. But the fact that they can charge you for that privilege, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, that. sure, yeah. <laughs> Always about the almighty pound, isn't it? Uh-huh. Just put a bunch of loudspeakers on top of the gherkin. Yeah, that would be good. Or the shard. I don't know. Do you know the shard? Sh- yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know the shard. Yeah, some weird and wonderful buildings around that neck of the woods. <laughs> There's the other one that they call the... Uh, it's been nicknamed the walkie-talkie. I don't know that one. Uh, yeah, they had to redesign some of it because of the way that the glass, and it's kind of mirrored was angled it was blinding car drivers as they oh, drove oh that's good <laughs> so they had to redesign some of the windows oh wow that is a funky looking but that looks like an old 1980s cell phone yeah yeah they call all, it all you need is the big black antenna on the top of it <laughs> yeah they call it the walkie talkie <laughs> you guys have some really strange architecture we have one in my hometown uh, it's a really weird building uh, it's called the Blue Leany, and for that reason, it's made of blue mirrored glass, and it leans. So they call it the Blue Leany. That's actually kind of cool looking. <laughs> oh, you've seen the Blue Leany. That is, it is a bizarre building. It's even more bizarre on the inside. <laughs> Lloyd's Banking Group. Yeah. That's, a, that's actually kind of a cool looking building, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But there, yeah, that's in my hometown. Yes, this is the British Architecture Show. <laughs> well, they used to call um, my hometown the uh, uh, of Aylesbury. They used to call it the Architect Sketchpad <laughs> because it was almost like, all right, we've got an idea for a building. Let's try it out in Aylesbury first, and then if it doesn't work, we won't build them anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Don't know that's a good thing. Well, no, that's kind of a good thing if you get cool-looking buildings like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, that's another one that caused problems for the drivers. So they had to um, plant trees so that it covered up the uh, off onto the main road. But there's always a way around it. Yeah. There was um, an April Fool's hoax uh, about the Blue Linie, actually, that um, they were sending the architects over to Italy because they were worried about how far the Tower of Pisa was actually leaning. Um, they were sending their architects over to um, have a look at it to see if they could sort a few things out. <laughs> no, I think Italy's got that one well in hand. <laughs> Talking about going off-world, have you seen 
the SpaceX spacesuit. Yes, actually, I had that printed off too. That is a really cool looking suit. I'm thinking it's a cross between sort of Tron and Halo. And you know what? It also kind of reminds you of the spacesuits from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh, yeah, it does a bit because I'm thinking in the Wrath of Khan when they've got the helmet and they've put the thing in his ear. Yeah, I know people who don't want to talk about that scene. <laughs> I'm not one of them. I'm good with it, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that that is a cool looking spacesuit, though. Yeah, I've seen a couple of the others because you've got the the Boeing one looks a bit bulky, but yeah, that does look cool. Yeah, the writer over Gizmodo called it like a said that like if Daft Punk went to Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah, because it's white. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Actually, when I showed it to me other half, she said it's a bit Daft Punk-like. Yeah. But so I think the picture that we've got here, because I've, I've only printed this off in black and white, but that's actually Elon Musk in the suit, isn't it, I think? He says that it's the first picture, but he doesn't say if that's actually someone in there. There's definitely someone in that suit. I right. Can, I can see someone's face in the I mean, the it, could be, it could be a well-painted dummy. Yeah, and I think it's Elon Musk. It might be. It might be. Why not? Just showing off. I, I need something for my profile picture. <laughs> I want one of these for Halloween. That would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> and at least you'd be able to see everything. Mm. I'll tell you what else it reminds me of. I don't know if you remember them. Uh, was it in the 70s or 80s? They had these astronaut helmet TVs. It's basically a normal television inside a, a helmet-shaped uh, plastic thing, and it had a visor on the front, so you had to pull the visor up to watch the TV. Wow, look at that. No, I never saw that before. <laughs> it must have been a European thing. Cool stuff. We go from space to TV and all points in between. Any- well, hell, we've talked about video games on this show, too. Yeah, we have done. Yeah, well, we mentioned Halo and that on there just now. So. <laughs> Point. <laughs> never got into that. As much of a gamer as I am, I just never got into Halo. It's surprising, really, because it's... I mean, it's still going, isn't it, Halo? Oh, God, yeah. Well, the the problem is, I'm a member of the PC Master Race, although I do own a, you know, PlayStation, and I've got an old Xbox 360. But, you know, Halo was the first really big first-person shooter for consoles. Mm -hmm. I'd been playing first-person shooters on PC long before that, so all of a sudden Halo comes out, and it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing, look, first-person shooter, oh, this is so good. I'm just like... Uh, been there done that the very first halo that i played drove me nuts because one section would look very much like the next one but then they did one of the most annoying things they can do in video games you run go all the way into the destination and then you fight your way back through the exact same area i hate when games do that and that's exactly what the first halo did so whatever now i probably got a whole bunch of xbox guys angry with me but oh well Oh, that's... I don't know if I mentioned to you... The guy I was telling you about at uh, Field of Force uh, West Midlands, the uh, the Mandalorian guy, mm-hmm. he is a um, video game developer. Nice. And he's worked on... Well, he's been in the business over 30 years. That's true. I think your one email to me, you suggested that we get him on one of the non-space shows so we could talk about that. Yeah, and he has actually agreed to come on the show to talk about that. Sweet. He's featured in the last month's issue of the UK version of Retro Gamer magazine. They did a whole article about him in there. Hmm. So I was looking through what machines 
he's worked on and I thought it's more of a case of what machines hasn't he worked on to right. be honest I mean he's even worked on the Spectrum nice <laughs> and the BBC Micro saying that and that's going back a few years but he's still in the industry so it'd be interesting to talk to him set that up yeah definitely well I'm, I'm going to be speaking to him at Field of Force Day anyway because he's going to the one at Peterborough and he said, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll meet up with you there, so we can discuss it then. <laughs> nice. And it's going to be good to um, catch up with a, a lot of people at the event because, you know, some of them I don't get to see until those kind of events come up. Someday, someday I'll get over there. Bargain hunters in Florida found some rare NASA flight suits. It cost them $1.20 for five flight suits that they found in a Titusville, Florida thrift store. They paid 20 cents each for each of the five flight suits, and now they could be valued at $5,000 each. So apparently, this is from uh, uh, two students, uh, Talia Rapa and Skyer Ashworth. And Ashworth is actually, he's been accepted into college on an aerospace program at Eastern Florida State College. So he's already into space and, and all of that other stuff. And he recognized these things immediately, apparently. They had to do some digging. This was in a bucket, like a a plastic container that was already underneath some other things. But they were just digging and digging and digging and looking for things. And he happened to see this flight suit, recognized it immediately, found five of them. Wow. And he ended up buying all five of them. So according to the experts at the American Space Museum... The astronauts' names and flight dates on the white labels match with astronauts uh, George Pinky Nelson, Ph.D., Robert A. Parker, Ph.D., Charles D. Walker, a payload specialist, and they flew on shuttle missions between 1983 and 1985. What's even crazier is that he said that my parents worked NASA communications with the shuttle program, and my grandfather even worked communications with the shuttle. <laughs> so he said that it just blows my mind that the bin holding the suits was under two other big totes. I moved them off to the side, and I'm digging through a whole bunch of sweaters and stuff, and I found the white one with the patch just kind of laying there. They're going to go up to a special auction conducted by the American Space Museum. The date for the auction is currently set for November 4th, some of the proceeds are going to be going to the museum, while the rest are going to be going to both of their college tuitions. So for more information about the museum and, of course, the auction, just go to spacewalkoffame.org. What a way to pay for your tuition in that, really? in that kind of field. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and the fact that he had relatives who worked on the shuttle program. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, coincidences. That's quite a coincidence. I can't fathom that. That's just yeah. too bizarre. He- I mean, I thought I did well with... Um, I was uh, at uh, kind of like a, what, a flea market type thing. Mm-hmm. There was a stall. Uh, I don't know what you would call them in the States, but uh, here they call them bric-a-brac. It just means anything. There's no theme to what they're selling. It's just anything and everything. Okay, fair enough. And uh, I saw something that caught my eye. It was a piece of paper that looked like a mission patch on it. So I had a look at it, and it was an envelope that had one of the mission patches for... can't remember which flight it was now, but it was a, a Challenger 
shuttle. Oh, nice. And I asked them how much they wanted for this envelope, and they said, uh, give us a couple of quid for it. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. I did a little bit of research. It should have come with a folder and other bits and pieces. It's got a number on the back to say it's a limited edition number and everything. Turns out this envelope was space flown. What? <laughs> nice. They had a box load of these envelopes that they took up on the space shuttle. And uh, they did a di- some kind of deal with the American post office where they had these like first day cover type things. Mm-hmm. Um, there were ones that had a certain postmark on it that weren't space flown. And my one has got a postmark on it for the date it was flown, or the date it launched, and another postmark on it on the day it landed. Nice. I was reading through and my number was in the list and I sort of said to my other half this is bizarre she said why was the matter I said I do believe that this envelope that I just bought for a couple of quid has actually flown on Challenger wow (laughs) that is awesome that is very very cool so I have now also it's not my envelope but it's a picture of the crew holding one of these envelopes I also have the missing patch for it because I, I sent off to my friends over at Skyforce base patches and said do you have one for this mission they said yeah I said, I said how much do you want for it and I said four dollars <laughs> so I said yeah okay and that was with free delivery nice um, so nice. I've got the space patch I've got a photograph of the crew holding one of these things and I've got the envelope and now I've just got to get it framed the whole lot together framed and that would look really nice very nice very nice but hey you know I've got a Richard Garriott mission patch so yes, I'm happy I know <laughs> <laughs> hey and Richard Garriott's got one of mine there um, you go. <laughs> International Podcast Day is September 30th and you can help spread the word you may be asking what can I do to get involved it's pretty simple Head over to internationalpodcastday.com and check the suggestions. Then use hashtag internationalpodcastday to join the conversation. You can reach out and connect with other podcasters, listeners, and your favorite podcast hosts. Remember September 30th, International Podcast Day, a day-long celebration of the power of podcasts. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. This is TGP Nominal. So, joining us once again from the UK Astronomy Group is Ross Hockham, who is going to be telling us about what's happening in the skies for September. How are you doing, Ross? Yeah, really well, mate. Thanks for having me back. Crazy enough to turn up. I know, I know. It's been, it's been <laughs> emotional today as well. <laughs> to say to the listeners we had a little bit of a technical issues going on here and there before we started but all's well now and uh let's go cool well it's september isn't it i like september i'll tell you why in a minute but uh, i'm afraid it's not as exciting a month as last month because last month you had the uh, eclipse even though we couldn't really see a lot of it we saw a graze i didn't see anything it was cloudy so i missed out and uh, there's no major meteor showers either like perseids last month which i again didn't see any of because it was cloudy that's a great british weather for you i did oh, yeah. see one last weekend which is quite good do you see any i think i saw something a couple of nights ago actually just the one but it just shot across very quickly that's what I saw we were, we were at Park Life in uh, Aylesbury doing that for camping and I saw one and it, it went from Perseus straight downwards so mm-hmm. I was like oh that counts this one was descending quite quick so I was assuming that's what it was <laughs> 
Yeah, it should be. Yeah, they, they carry on through. They dumb down now at the end of the month, but there's still a few going on. But yeah, unfortunately, most of this month, you're going to have to be a bit of an early bird because it's kind of uh, more about getting up early and seeing a few planets rising. First thing we've got is uh, Venus, which has been up for a little while, and it rises about 3.30 a.m. And if you get up and you see it, you can't miss it. It's shining so bright, it's amazing. You'd actually think it's probably a plane coming towards you. If you get a scope on it, you might need a moon filter, can help dumb it down a bit. But you'll notice that it's actually, they do have phases. So Venus has a phase, it'll be about the three-quarter mark, so it won't be a full circle. So that's always worth having a look at. But the main things we're looking at at the moment is if you keep an eye or binoculars or scope, depending on what you've got. In the morning, if you keep an eye on Mars and Mercury over the next month, you'll be able to see them moving across the sky. It starts around the second. They rise at about 5.30 in the morning, so you don't have to get up as early to see them. Venus will be up as well. And uh, as they move around, you'll see them kind of moving past each other and stuff. If we jump forward from the second to the 12th, Mercury, which is the first planet in our solar system, is always quite hard to see because it's near the sun. It actually reaches its greatest western elongation. Now, the scientific term for elongation, which I actually googled because I'm not a scientist, uh, it says it's an angular separation of a planet from the sun or of a satellite from a planet as seen by an observer, the observer being us on Earth. So it's, it's kind of like from the observer what we see. So it's not actually where it is because it's always in sort of like a circular, almost circular orbit. Mm -hmm. To me, in layman terms, I say that it pretty much means that when we're looking at it, it's the furthest point to the west that it's going to go before it starts changing direction and heading back kind of towards the sun. So at that point on the 12th, that's the best time to see it because it's kind of when it's its highest and the furthest away from the sun. So before the sun rises, you can get a good look at it, hopefully. But at the moment, it will slip behind and out of view. So if we pop to the 15th to the 18th, so a few days there, if you go out on the 15th in the morning, you'll see Mars and Mercury quite close to each other. And through the next couple of days, you should just kind of slip past each other. I think Mars just slips underneath Mercury and along. So there will be a point there, especially for astronomers, if you've got a telescope or even binoculars or a camera, camera's quite good, you should be able to get both of them in one shot. So it's a great time to try and get two planets together. Mars is slightly not in a great place at the moment. It's the other side of the sun for us and we're heading towards it, so it will get better. But that's quite a cool thing to watch. And then we've got the 17th. If you again manage to get a scope onto Mercury, being very careful because the sun is rising, so you don't really want to accidentally get the sun on it because you'll never see anything again. So never look at the sun, as we spoke about last month. It also, like Venus, will have a phase, and it's because both of those planets are within our orbit, so they're between us and the sun, and that makes them have phases. The ones behind us don't. So it's something else you can get to see. And if you look at Mercury, it's going to be around about half. So you'll get to see Venus at about three quarters, if not nearly full, and then Mercury at about half. So you can see the difference in the two. As I said, if you've got a, a telescope, a moon filter can really help dumb it down. They don't cost too much. You can get one for about 10, 20, 30 pounds, depending on which one you like. I mean, you can spend hundreds, but if you're just an amateur, you guys don't need to worry about that. Uh, then on the 19th, there is a really, really special occasion, and it's my 35th birthday. <laughs> So send all of your donations to our Just Giving page, which you can find on www.ukastronomy.org. And I promise I won't spend it all on beer and going out and enjoying myself. <laughs> but if we move back now to actual astronomy rather than me, so that's kind of like we've done Mercury, Venus and Mars. Have a look at them throughout the month. You'll see them moving about. It's great. So now we're going to go to the furthest planet in our solar system 
which is hard to see. The, uh, the ones in the morning, you can see them all with the naked eye. So there's no excuse not to go out. But this one's Neptune. It's the furthest one away, so it's really hard to see because it's quite dim. With a telescope, you can see it. But on the 5th, it will be at opposition, which pretty much means that we're closest to it in our orbit as we go round. It's still pretty far away, being, you know, millions of light years in space, but it will appear to be slightly bigger and brighter than usual, so it gives you the best chance of actually finding it. It's in the constellation of Aquarius, but as I said, you will need a telescope to see it because you won't be able to see it with the naked eye. If you have trouble finding it, if you, it should be on an app like Stellarium or uh, some of the other ones that are out there, but if you have trouble finding it, the next day, on the 6th, our moon actually won't be too far away from it so you could kind of use that almost like a signpost or a guide it kind of will be around about a seven o'clock mark down into uh it was aquarius i said wasn't it yeah. yes aquarius i always get confused between that and aries <laughs> yeah so if you have a look there that will be a good signpost to try and find it the only problem being the moon is nearly full so it is going to wash out the sky a bit so neptune might be slightly harder to see but might be easier to find if that helps <laughs> but it's all good fun. Go and have a look. And if you do manage to find Neptune, if you zoom in a little bit of your eyepiece, pop maybe a 10 mil in or something like that. If you know your eyepieces, it just means you're going to look closer. You can see its main moon, which is Triton. And if you watch that over the month, I think I read it's about 20-something days. It moves around the planet. Oh, so you right. can actually watch it over the days. You can just do a little drawing, say it was there. A few days later, oh, it's moved over there. And you can learn how they move around. You can do it with Jupiter as well, because it's got four moons. Uh, that leads me on to, yeah, the other planets. So what's going on with them? Well, no laughing. Uranus is up most of the night, and it's in the constellation of Pisces. This is where I said I get confused with Aries, because Aries is there. If you follow the constellation of Aries down, it's kind of like a curve constellation, and follow that straight into Pisces, it will be around about there. There'll be a star just there in Pisces where you can find Uranus. Again, you can't really see it without a telescope because it's quite far away. It's the second furthest. What you'll see with Uranus and Neptune is almost sort of like two little marbles, two little blue dots. And they'll be different to stars because they're just, they almost look tiny little round things. One will be dark blue and one will be slightly lighter blue. And that's how you can tell you've actually found them rather than a, a, a twinkling star. And then you, you've still got Jupiter and Saturn. They're very low at the moment, just as the sun sets. The problem is we are still moving away in our orbit from them. So viewing's only going to kind of get worse and worse. And then they're going to disappear below the horizon probably the end of the month. So then you won't be able to see them till next year. So if you've got a chance, pop out and see them. You can see them with a the naked eye. And uh, yeah, just as the sun sets, get some binoculars on as well. You can see the rings just about of Saturn. And you'll see the four moons of Jupiter. There are a couple of events that are going on. Uh -huh. Have you heard of Astronomy for Fun? I've heard of it. They're, they're pretty much the same as us, really, UK Astronomy. They're just a fun group on Facebook. They're like us down to earth, like, you know, people chatting on there and help people. And they're based in the sort of Northampton area. We're more sort of Milton Keynes and Aylesbury. But, you know, we'll go anywhere, anywhere that anyone likes us, really. If, if there's camping involved, I love it, we'll go. But, yeah, they've got on the 23rd, if you're, in, if you're around that area, they've got a uh, solar viewing. And it's, at, uh, I think it's Broadston or Bronston. It's in the Northampton area. It's nine till one. And they're raising money for the air ambulance. So they're there helping for a good cause. So Definitely. you can probably find it. We'll have it on our website. We'll pop the link on there for you. You can't say no to that. Go and see the sun and sunspots and flares and, you know, help save people's lives. Excellent. 
And then apart from that, we've got our own event. And it's only a little one this time because we did Park Life recently, last weekend. So that was that was massive. I was so tired afterwards. <laughs> we had we had clear skies, so I was really pleased. But yeah, the 29th of September, we're doing a, a kind of scope aid night. There might be a talk, depending on uh, if anyone wants to do one. I've thrown it out to my astronomers and said, would you like to do a talk about something? That'll be in Olney. So there's a little town called Emberton at Olney, and it's, uh, I think it's Holton Drive. And uh, it's near Milton Keynes, but not too far. And yeah, if anyone's got any problems with any telescopes, you don't know how to build it, how to use it, pop along. It's, it's free. We have a donation bucket there, and we, we ask if you could just pop a couple of pounds in as a thank you if we helped you. It just helps us cover petrol and costs and stuff like that, or buy inflatable planets to teach kids. So that's all of our events that are really going on. So tell us a bit more about what happened at Park Life. Oh, it's crazy. So it's basically a, f- a festival, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big concert sort of thing. And it goes on through one Saturday in the summer, usually the, the bank holiday, and it's held at Aylesbury's Vale Park, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's just near the Aquavale, so where the swimming pool is. That's the easiest way to find it. And I think I think it runs to the, sat- the Sunday as well, but the Sunday's proms in the park. Oh, right. You have, yeah, so that you have like a concert with bands on there that are really good. They had a Bon Jovi tribute one fantastic sounded like he was there and then i mean that was great we were sitting there in our deck chairs with the tents waiting for the skies to go dark listening to bon jovi and having a cup of tea because <laughs> we know the lady who runs it her name's ruth matthew she invited us she's actually the mayor invited us last year just i went to a community meeting tesco's in Aylesbury and just kind of bumped into them and she went you're an astronomer aren't you i was like yeah she's like well we've got security all overnight but there's no one there doing anything so did you want to like maybe camp there or something overnight for free i was like yeah cool free camping (laughs) why not we set up first of all in the communal area and we do solar so we had a few about five or six scopes there a hydrogen alpha which shows you the flares then a few other scopes which show you sunspots in the sun but in different colors you've got white light red because then the kids like to have a look and they're like oh that one's white and they go and look in the oven oh it's red and we muck about with them and say oh what color is that one in red well okay what's it in that one then white what the sun's changed color colors it up there don't look with that look with your solar glasses because they always try and look these are solar glasses oh it's kind of an orange there and i'm like so you're telling me it's changed three different colors <laughs> and bless them they get so confused and then you explain it to them <laughs> and uh yeah then they get it and they're like oh thanks for that uh my friend dan brown he's uh funny i'm not the author they always get that <laughs> Dan Brown, he's a science teacher and he's done worksheets for us. So he did it all about solar and, you know, he actually sat down. He was so good, man. He sat down with uh, our young, I like to call him our junior UK astronomer, Tom. He's got he's got more knowledge than I ever too. He's fantastic. They're both sitting there teaching all the kids and going through the word searches and, you know, questions about the sun and stuff. And they're really, really good. And yeah, he makes the worksheets for us. And then uh, we've got a guy, Andy, at Fresh, Fresh Printing. He prints it for free for us. Oh, wow. So all these people coming in together, science teachers, printers, Mr. Pickles, who uh, Tom's his son, he's an astronomer as well, but he's also, he works in the Navy. So we've got Navy boys, we've got all sorts of people that all muck in together to come to these events to teach people about the sun. We're there the Saturday in the communal area and there's loads of other people there. There was medical, my wife works with medical detection dogs, so I have to plug them. <laughs> They were there. The local Tesco's who helps us was there as well. Awesome. Loads of other people. Well, they're only across the way, aren't they? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's an easy walk for them. <laughs> they were giving away free fruit. So if you like a nectarine or a plum, go next year. It's usually around the 26th, 23rd, I think. So we'll be there again next year. Yeah. And all the events have to be free for the public. Mm-hmm. So you're not allowed to do any fundraising or selling and all that sort of stuff. So it's literally you have to have something. You go there with something to teach 
or you know to something for the public yeah. that they can enjoy so they don't feel like they have to you know pay which I mean you don't really get that anywhere <laughs> there's very few places that allow you know um, such a massive event there's about I think she said about 13,000 people at the end wow so we had a work cut out for us but yeah once once it got dark we were there was cloud for a bit and the public were allowed to come between sort of like about 10 and 11 but generally we're there with our scopes all out and if someone pops by and says hello we will you know we'll show them and chat to them about scopes and stuff but uh it was cloudy until about midnight so we had a few come up and chat to us about stuff and took some of our leaflets and then when they all went home it cleared so as astronomers we had a great time because <laughs> we had all our scopes out the 16 inch dob the 8 inch dob i've got a 10 inch dob as well I don't know what mix are. Mix a, a mate of mine who comes along and always helps. He's a builder, and his stuff's amazing. He's got he's, everything tracks and looks red and funky and sparkly and nice, whereas mine's all manual. <laughs> <laughs> but I found more because I'm very good at finding what's in the sky, whereas he presses a button and has to guess. Is it over there? I don't know. It says it is. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it cleared up, and that's where I saw the uh, like the meteor, and then uh, we looked all over constellations i found uh i put it on facebook actually i put it in the group there's a there's a cluster in cassiopeia which is a w in the sky and it's called the owl cluster and it's pretty much a little cluster of stars but there's two really bright ones that look like like the owl's eyes looking at you oh yeah and they also call it the et cluster because it does have that sort of shape of his head with the yes. two eyes yeah we saw that but then when we looked at it Mick came along and he hadn't seen it before and it was my first time actually finding it properly and actually been like that is it that is it we looked through the 16 inch so it looks amazing you can see everything yeah that's that's the Johnny and the Johnny 5 cluster isn't it it is yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. we put Johnny he looked and he just said it looks like Johnny 5 I'm sorry for anyone who doesn't know that because they're young but <laughs> I'm an old man I remember it but yeah he said Johnny 5 and I, I found a picture and it's a spitting image it's exactly the same so I'm never going to look at it the same now. It's always going to be Johnny Five. <laughs> it's great, and that's that's the sort of little things you can find out there. You'll just be looking around, you see a little cluster, and uh, there, as I say, it, when Orion comes up in a few months, there's a, there's the number thirty-seven in it, <laughs> and it, you're like, what? Who's put thirty-seven in the sky? It's crazy. All these numerologists are going to be looking at that, going, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, they, someone said to me once. Let us know if it starts counting down, because <laughs> then you can really start worrying. You're like, what? Why is it saying 36? 35? <laughs> End of the world. <laughs> so, yeah, we had a great time. We saw the Andromeda Galaxy and loads of clusters in the Ring Nebula, which is kind of like a dying star. And, yeah, it's a shame that the public couldn't see that, but there's plenty more time. And that, why not grab a scope and have a look yourselves? Because this month there isn't really a lot going on. Well, there is. There's, there's planets moving about, which you can't say is not cool planets but like uh, when we get to sort of october november time it gets darker so then i can start talking about if you want i can like pick a constellation and explain to people what the constellation is the mythology behind it and what mm -hmm. there is to see there and how to find it yeah awesome and, and, and what it is like, like if you if you talk about vega that's a star and it's in lyra and if you look down to the bottom two stars of the constellation in between that you've got the ring nebula mm -hmm. which is which is pretty much a dying star and talk a bit about that so there's a bit of science involved as well so it'd be good yeah a bit of astrophysics if, if you'd like that that is yeah, yeah if you course. guys would like that that'd be awesome i can say you know the few bits that are going on in the sky and then say right the object of the month this month is the ring nebula 
Yeah. And here's how to find it like for a bit more fun and talk. Yeah, definitely. Not every month we're going to have a, a packed segment here, but it's, it's really great to get you on the show and talk about different things. It's always good to talk about space anyway. That's what we oh, do. I, I love being here. It's good fun. <laughs> I'll talk for hours, so that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> It was good to have Ross back on the show again. Uh, there's one thing he did want me to, to mention, because he forgot to mention it there. We were talking a little bit about some of the events that they get involved in and things. There is a UK Astronomy events page on Facebook as well, so that if you want to know what's going on, what events they've got coming up, search for uh, UK Astronomy events. It will take you to that page. Yeah, so it's a little bit sparse at the moment with different things that are going Going on in space and like he said he's going to talk more about different constellations and stuff that are out there because now the nights are drawing in getting darker um you're going to see a lot more of these things out there mm-hmm. and it makes it more interesting for the younger people as well because obviously when it's in in the summer months you've got to wait till 10 10 30 at night before it starts getting dark and you're up till whatever time just trying to get views of things yeah, but then, you know, he mentioned Orion, and I hate it when Orion comes into view, because that means it's going to get cold. <laughs> it's so easily recognizable, but that also means the temperature is going to be dropping. Mm-hmm. Now, he also mentioned there the owl cluster, or as we were calling it, the Johnny Five cluster. Hey, laser lips, your mama was a snowblower. I heard that. I was like, oh, God, really? <laughs> uh, have, have you seen the pictures of it, though? I have not. I got, in fact, I'm going to look that up. It really does look like Johnny Five. <laughs> Oh my god, I can see it. You can see his arms stretched out and these yes. lights. <laughs> and the two big eyes glow. Oh, wow. The Johnny Five cluster. <laughs> yes, it's even got something that looks like the, his wheeled base. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's scary. <laughs> I will never be able to unsee this. <laughs> and I can't believe somebody hasn't come across that before. Well, P- you know, people were calling it the ET cluster. I can see that too. Wow. We're definitely going to have to put something up about Johnny Five now because there are going to be some younger people listening that haven't got a clue. I don't know. (laughs) So Johnny Five really is alive. (laughs) Yeah, he's up there. <laughs> so the problem is, if you try and describe Johnny Five to a kid, they're oh. going to say that that's Chappie. Chappie, have you, have you not? It doesn't sound familiar. Who was in it? Who was in it? Um, Hugh Jackman, I think. Oh, was that the boxing? That wasn't the boxing one, was it? No, no. It, it was. It was basically a modern version of Short Circuit. 2015. Why have I not heard of this? It was released in the USA. A police droid is stolen and given new programming, which gives him the ability to feel and think for himself. Oh, yeah, that short circuit. Uh-huh. <laughs> huh. No, for some reason, that one just completely slipped under my radar. Maybe it didn't do too well in the American box office then. Or maybe it was given a limited run over here? Yeah, maybe. It was plugged to death over here. <laughs> Take a look. Get the actual box office results. Uh, production budget forty nine million. Domestic gross in the U S thirty one million. From that perspective, it didn't even break even, but it still made one hundred and two million worldwide. Sigourney Weaver, Hugh Jackman, composed by Hans Zimmer, and I mean, written and directed by Neil Blomkamp. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's wow. It's not a small time movie by any. No, not at all. Those are some serious names attached to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as soon as I saw it, I thought, yeah, this this is just a remake of short circuit sounds like it 
I think I'd rather just watch. Although, you know, Short Circuit had its level of cheese, too. I mean, after all, being from the 1980s. Oh. Yeah. A lot of movies had cheese thrown in. I was listening to a thing on the radio the other day when they were talking about different things regarding the 80s, and then it, made, it reminded me of something you mentioned on your podcast, actually, because you were talking about the, the way people don't like certain things that are in movies and are turned off by movies that have certain yeah. things in mm-hmm. them. And it just reminded me of those movies that they made in the 80s, which were made for tele- not not television movies but they were edited for television right like beverly hills cop there was a television version of that yeah i i don't even know how that could work there's certain words that they changed and you knew i'm sure (laughs) you you knew full well that that wasn't eddie murphy saying it (laughs) oh yeah or maybe eddie murphy in a studio yeah i always loved that one because you know they'd have commercials over here where they they'd change the phone number to call in based on your area so that they could have some demographics from that regard and it would just be so if you're interested then call and all of a sudden 1-800-273 you know just just the volume and tone is completely different it's like oh yeah that was a studio session thank you very much I love the way well not love the way I find it quite amusing the way in advertising now that they used to have specific region specific adverts made now you just have the original advert that has been dubbed over mm-hmm. like this uh, like Johnson's products which uh, must be in Scandinavian or something like that and it's been dubbed over in English and it's almost like watching one of these martial art movies <laughs> why? I, I, I don't know And and another one that they do a lot of in the UK is we have American commercials which have been dubbed over in an English accent. That's dumb. And it's like, well, well, yeah, it's an English advert. No, it's not. Look at those houses. Those houses are most definitely American houses, not British ones. We've had that over here too because I don't know if it's called the same thing over there, but Mentos, candies. Yeah. Same thing because they'd they'd run the commercials over here. They'd play that goofy tune that they've got associated with it. But you could take a look at it and it's like – those cars are European and they're driving on the other side of the road or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But there are always indications that wasn't filmed here. <laughs> we, we have quite a lot of them for a, a yogurt company called Muller. Um, and they're kind of like their poster person for the product is Nicole Scherzinger. Mm, okay. And you know she hasn't filmed it over here. She, yeah. she, she's in America when she's filmed it, but they've made it, tried to make it look like it's been filmed in Britain, and it's not. Um, Why do they do that? We're, <laughs> we're cousins, for crying out loud. <laughs> we might have a couple of words that are different here and there, but we're, we're cousins for... Just that, I don't understand that. Um, another one is a company called moneysupermarket.com, which is one of these websites that you can go on, like price comparison. Mm-hmm. Things. Okay, right, right. And the commercial at the moment for it is Skeletor and He-Man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're British. Uh-huh. And they, they tried to make it look as though Skeletor is happy because he's just saved some money on something or other. Uh, and <laughs> there's Skeletor dancing down the street and... Uh, 
then you see P-Man looking at him dancing down the street going, yeah, he's so super, moneysupermarket.com, you know. <laughs> it is bizarre. You'll have to make up and everything is really good. Um, and he's dancing to um, Irene Cara's fame as he's dancing oh, down the street. <laughs> wow, they went full on cheese on this one, didn't they? Oh, you've got it on screen. No, 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 no. Just the fact that you're talking about Irene Cara and Skeletor dancing and just like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> the, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, this is superb. I love this. <laughs> it's the fact that they're bringing these characters All right, back on hold TV. On. What, what is it called again? It's called moneysupermarket.com. Oh, my God. But you know damn well that's not in Britain. Uh, it's... <laughs> No, those are not British houses. <laughs> oh, this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> this, th- yeah. And they're driving on the right side of the road. No, 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 that's left side. So it might be Australia then. Either that or they, they just, reversed the video, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the makeup and everything is really good, but... Wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. He-Man just said something that did not sound American. Skeletor! You're so money supermarket. <laughs> no, that is not American. That guy definitely had an accent. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be with you. I'd venture Australia, because the one scene, it looked like he was on the right side of the road, but he was actually in the right, the right lane of the left side of the road. Mm-hmm. That, that, Don't know what to tell you, but oh my god. That's one of the most bizarre commercials that we've got on TV at the moment. Cannot unsee. <laughs> <laughs> Watch that commercial after watching the video for Living in a Box, you know, that's and your mind will just really explode. I'm laughing at that. Got these compilations on, on my phone at the moment, music compilations, and one of the tracks came up and it was that. It was Living in a Box came up on the phone. And uh, I was going to take a screenshot of, of it and send it on Facebook and say, there you go, John, look, it's on my phone. Smack you. <laughs> Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com Right, I think that's about everything for this episode. What do you think, John? I think we're done, because, you know, my voice should be sounding like this at this rate. (laughs) Well, it's fantastic having you on the show again, John. Always fun to talk with you, my friend. And it was great to have Ross back on the show, and long may he want to get involved with us. Thanks to Liz for providing that content from uh, South Carolina. That was awesome. And thanks to everyone that uh, has provided us with photographs to put on the website from the Eclipse. That's amazing. Only leaves us with one thing left to say, and uh, thanks again to everyone out there for listening, and uh, we will speak to you again real soon.
Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. Don't you put in that toodles clip. Toodles! I hate you.